Well, good morning again. Please turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we near the end of our journey through these two epistles. I had the choice of preaching 13 verses, then two, or preaching five, then the rest, and I've opted for the latter option. Let's read together the first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Paul is pointing out that because of God's unwavering faithfulness, the Thessalonians should walk faithfully. It's a dynamic that's important in the Christian life. Because of God's unwavering faithfulness, the Thessalonians should walk faithfully. So after reminding us about God's love for them and exhorting them to stand firm and to hold to tradition and uh, the traditions that they taught them and truth and holiness, Paul transitions and sets up which will be the last major topic addressed in the letter, which we will address next time. And he does so by the second time... uh, by asking for prayer, for the second time, by asking for prayer, excuse me. The first time is at the end of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.25. He says, brothers, pray for us. This time it is a quite focused request for prayer. He says, pray for me, and he's going to give two reasons here. He's going to give two reasons for prayer. The first is that the gospel will run forward. The gospel will run forward. The word literally for speed ahead is to run. Where we find Paul using his extraordinarily common reference to sport in the games that we see throughout his letters, this vivid picture of how he desires the word of the Lord, that the gospel message, this phrase, word of the Lord, has already been used in 1 Thessalonians, to go forth. And not just to go forth, but to be glorified is what it actually says, to be honored as it goes forth. Just as it was when the Thessalonians received it. Remember what he said? You received it not as the word of man, but as it it actually was the words of, of God. And the combination of both of these creates this imagery of a runner who has competed and he has won and he is experiencing the honor that comes with that. And as I was preparing for this Sunday, I was, I was asking myself, do, do we pray with such ambition about the gospel in our own communities, in our own cities? And I have to confess, as, as, as one of your pastors, I so often find myself praying what seem to be much more Realistic prayers. Um, Prayers that don't require a lot of anything extraordinary to happen. Prayers about what I think the future will look like. 
And my lack of ambition there is based largely on a presupposition that I can't prove, and that is that the future of the spread of the gospel in Nashville will always resemble the past. That's unprovable. Simply assumes past patterns will continue indefinitely. When I see people like Moses praying that God would show me His glory, even after everything he's already seen, and after he's walking away from their one-on-ones with a face that shines so bright it freaks people out, after I see Paul pray that the gospel would run away to the glory of God, it makes me, I feel conviction over lack of my ambition. And that's a problem. To pray so ambitiously, by the way, is not misguided. So you're going to pray ambitiously and it doesn't happen. See, we knew that was misguided. It's not misguided. Because at any one moment that we inhabit, we do not know what God will allow us to see in a future that no one has experienced. You think anyone expected a great awakening? So I share that with you as I read through this text. I have a pitifully low ambitions for what I would like to see the gospel. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, to, to pray boldly about this, that the gospel would get legs in your communities, in our city, and even as a result of the faithfulness of our church. So he starts by asking for prayer that the gospel would run forward as a result of his ministry, number one. And then he asks that they pray That we may be delivered, verse 2, from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. It's likely that he has a specific group in mind or a particular challenge in mind um, for two reasons. The first is the definite article, which did not make it into the ESV, but there's a definite article in the Greek, uh, the wicked and, and evil men. And actually delivered here is in the past tense. It fits better with something that happened that the Thessalonians would have been familiar with Uh, But we are not. He reminds us of something that seems so obvious. may seem like it's not worth saying. That not all have faith. Pray that we're delivered from these wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. But these are the the kind of people who who are opposing him. Faithless people. And we're going to see that he included this for a very particular reason. So he asks for prayer for two things. And then he changes the subject with a contrast. But... And then he includes a play on words at the last verse that delightfully, very rarely, this very rarely happens in translation, but delightfully it is kind of preserved in the English. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Did did you hear the contrast there? Verse 2, prayer that they will be delivered from evil men for not all have faith, but God is faithful and will deliver you from the evil one. In the Greek, faithful and faith are one one letter difference, and they're directly next to each other. One at the end of the sentence, one at the beginning of the next one. But unmistakable to anyone looking at the manuscript. He does this play on words intentionally. Prayer that we will pray that we will be delivered from evil men, for not all have faith, but God's faithful, and He'll deliver you from the evil one. And and and, and, and the idea is. He is going to strengthen and He is going to establish this positive language of 
fortifying that we see in verse 3. He is going to establish positive language and then guard preventative language against the evil one or, or Satan and his influencers and his influence and his influencers. The picture that emerges is that God is faithful in working offensively and defensively for his people as they contend against evil one and evil, faithless people, who are the very people, remember, that Paul's gospel needs to run toward. Of course, it's easy to forget that and draw the line in the sand. God is playing offense and defense. So when I, as many of you know that I used to play soccer. And when we scrimmaged, we uh, would have uneven teams sometime. Sometimes when we would have a coach, one particular season of competitive soccer where uh, our coach would just be all-time offense, you know? You would have uneven numbers, so you'd have someone who played all-time offense or something like that. Had another coach who was, um, well, his conditioning was not quite the same as the first coach, and he always volunteered to play all-time keeper, okay? Or it's like the goalie for soccer, if you know where, right? And... It struck me today that God is not all-time offense or defense. He plays all-time offense and defense. God plays all-time offense for his people and all-time defense. He advances the mission and strengthens his people while he guards what is precious simultaneously. He doesn't pick and choose. He does both. And so the believer here has a hope that they are both being established, strengthened, built up, Rooted and guarded. God is working for you offensively and defensively. That's what Paul tells the Thessalonians the hope is. That's why they can stand strong and hold firm to. And it's because of that that he, he says what he says next. And if he didn't say this, it, it might sound like Christianese. It might sound like Christianese. And we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. Notice that the confidence is split into two kinds. Two kinds of confidence. One is that they are doing. And the second is that what they will do. Or, you might say, faithfulness commended. Faithfulness commanded. He's already acknowledged multiple times now how the believers at Thessalonica are be commended for how they have persevered in the faith amidst persecution. How their faith has grown extravagantly. Their love for one another, how they have heeded his words. And that's the case despite the fact that there is some needed correction to be made. The last of which is has already been addressed, but will be addressed fuller in the next section. So the two aren't mutually exclusive. They are a faithful body who nevertheless has some genuine serious corrections to make, just like the folks at Corinth. They were mistaken about a future resurrection, and Paul doesn't go in there and call them all heretics. He starts off calling them the church of God and helps them just understand properly. So after commending the church and not throwing the baby out of the bathwater, he also has these commands. And he's already given a couple. He will give more. He's confident that the majority are doing these things, confident they will continue to do so. 
And nevertheless, he understands that some are not. So he addresses them as well. And I want to draw your attention to that word command here. Command. Because between here and the next section, the command obey language shows up a combined five times before the end of the letter. And again, as I was going over this passage, I thought it is worth pausing when you read this to make a point that what we read in Paul's letters regarding how to live the Christian life is generally speaking, the vast majority of cases, not suggestions or his personal preferences. He does, he does give those. There are places where he does give those. But in the Pauline letters, when we see calls to action, we aren't primarily looking at best practices or good advice. We are looking at commands from an apostle of Jesus Christ. Commands. Commands from an apostle where obedience is expected or consequences followed. You remember the end of 2 Corinthians? He's like, I'm afraid you're not going to find me how you want to find me because I'm going to come and the, and, the, and the gloves are going to come off and I'm kicking people out. There will be consequences. Don't think that because the apostle Paul is off the scene that there are not grave, grave consequences for consistently disobeying Inspired commands of Scripture with apathy or excuses. Being comfortable disobeying the commands of Scripture because you do not sense immediate consequences like getting struck by lightning or losing your job or getting divorced is as silly as clogging your arteries with McDonald's food day after day and on any one particular occasion saying, well, I don't feel any different. No consequences. It's not so bad. Back off. These are commands to be obeyed. And if you are not, if you consistently make excuses, if you consistently are apathetic, as you look to the gospel and as you drink in grace, I'm not trying to give a do better, try harder, but someone who's consistently looks to commands of Scripture, apathetically looks the other way, consequences are coming. God disciplines the children that He loved, and He judges those who aren't His, aren't his children. Sin has consequences. Even if you don't feel them in the moment, or the next moment, or the one after that. So Paul is confident that the Thessalonians will obey his commands. And remember, it's the commands on the, on the basis of the gospel. Not do better, try harder. Look at the gospel, look at Christ Jesus and his faithfulness. And that is the foundation upon which I obey. And it gives me the fuel to obey. And we're going to return to that later. He's confident that they are obeying. They will continue to obey. And then he gives one of, us, one of his may the lords. When you say may the Lord in many cases like this, it's in that op optative mood. If you're an English major, you may remember that. The optative mood. But when it, in this context, it gives the idea of an imperatival. It's an imperatival optative. It gives an imperative. He's praying that this would happen, but it also is simultaneously function as an exhortation to be about this. Be about what he's about to say. And what does he say? 
May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He prays that God would lead or direct their hearts to two phrases that are a bit ambiguous. And the ESV, I think this is what you should do, he leaves it ambiguous. Is Paul praying that they would be led into more love for God or that they would be more they would be led into the love that God has for them? See how it's ambiguous in the English too? Love of God. Similarly, is he praying that they would um, exhibit the steadfast exhibit steadfastness towards Christ? Or is he telling is, is he leading them to the steadfastness that Christ has has for them? Like what is what exactly is he saying here? I would suggest that giving the preceding context, uh, how Paul uses this phrase elsewhere and kind of how it grounds the next section, at least on the first half, it seems clear to me that we can understand that as God's love for them. Remember, this is the brothers beloved by the Lord. Remember the close of the last section, and it's an emphasis that you are loved by God. I think for a couple of different reasons, that one seems clear. And yet, because the two clauses are parallel... Because of Christ's own example of steadfastness, same word as endurance from Hebrews 12, as an act of love. And because the Lord's faithfulness has already been mentioned in the passage, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful, I I think we should understand this the same way. He is pointing them towards the faithfulness of Christ on their behalf, the endurance of Christ on their behalf. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, Paul's wish prayer, which is that optative mood kind of a prayer, is for the Lord to direct the reader's hearts to God's love for them and to the perseverance which Christ demonstrated as a basis for encouraging what Paul considers proper Christian behavior. Not behavior modification, not do better, try harder. Look. Look and behold and have your heart captured by this gospel. How do I find the fuel to obey the Lord? So I can stand fast and hold to? I fix my eyes on the love of God displayed in the gospel and the endurance and the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. Secure that on my behalf. I've said it once and I'll say it again. I'm sure I'll say it a number of other times till people are tired of me saying it. I love my son. And I love you all. I love It's all right. I'll speak loud. Oh, there it is. But here's the truth. If y'all were standing, if my son Will and, and any of you all were standing over the trap door and I had to pull the lever that lets you down into the lava, you would have to meet Jesus and fry because I would not give up my son for anybody. I'm sorry. I love you both. But I would not give up my son for you. And yet, the Father shows a love we cannot imagine. By giving up his son for you and I. And it wasn't just a quick technical checkbox, by the way, prior to returning to heaven, so that the Father could keep a clean sheet in the justice category for systematic theology textbooks. It was a grueling burden with a hideous end. It was an incredible, it was a, Jesus endured something that no one can possibly imagine for the joy set before him. For the love of God, for you and I, he showed steadfastness. And Paul was saying, 
What do you find? How do you find the fuel to obey when it's difficult and when life presses in? How do you hold fast to truth and holiness? You look to the incredible love of God displayed in Christ and his sacrifice. You look at the endurance of Christ on your behalf. Because of God's unwavering faithfulness, the Thessalonians should walk faithfully, and so should you and I. Now, last week, we, we asked what it looked like to stand firm for the truth and kind of take hold of comfort. We see something similar here, but in broader perspective. What does faithfulness and steadfastness look like? What's my role as God holds me fast? The first thing I want to mention here is the centrality of prayer. Paul starts the passage with a request for prayer, ends it with another prayer, just like he did the last passage. Prayer is a theme we see all over Paul's life all over the Thessalonian letters, and surely this is no mistake. And that is because of the incredibly important role that prayer, according to James, is powerful, that Jesus withdrew from normal ministry activity to do. Incredible role that this plays in the Christian life. It's always interesting to me at the beginning of the year, people eager to announce their Bible reading plan, and it's great. It's awesome. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone, and I'm not saying they don't have them. I'm not saying they don't have them. I've just seen, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone articulate their prayer plan alongside their Bible reading plan. And, I, and, and prayer is, harder, is the harder discipline. So you plan one and wing the other. You say, Tyler, a prayer plan, that's not a thing. Well, why shouldn't it be? What's the opposite? Winging one of the most important spiritual disciplines in the Christian life? I'm not saying it's got to look super wooden. I'm not saying you read. I don't necessarily care how you do it. A plan's a, pl- a plan just means here am I here and how in an organized, regular, consistent fashion, I'm going to do this. That's what a Bible reading plan is, and that's what a prayer plan is. Surely people don't think that the prayer over their cereal in the morning or their half-conscious prayer about thanks before their head hits the pillow is sufficient to cultivate, uh, cultivate a relationship of intimacy with God any more than it is a relationship of intimacy in any other relationship, including your spouse. Now, you could do a whole conference on prayer. EM Bounds, complete works this big on prayer. It talks about prayer so much it's exhausting to read. There, there, are, there are so many benefits of prayer, so many different kinds of prayer, so many different aids to a prayer, acrostics that can help you pray, a uh, book of common prayer, for example, written prayers, valley of it. There, there are so many helpful tools that I thought that instead of giving you an overwhelming list of things that no one will remember, I'm going to put the ball in your court and just ask two questions. Hopefully they're good questions that, that, that kind of like a pebble in your shoe. The first one is, how often and meaningfully do you, like Paul and Jesus, seek the Father in prayer? It's about as simple as it gets. I mean, if you had to rate your scale, your consistency or your frequency and how meaningful the time is, which is also important, in terms of you seeking the Father in prayer on a scale of 1 to 10 or something, where would you, where, where would you grade yourself on your own reckoning 
And are you satisfied with that? That's just a question I throw out to you to answer. How often and how meaningfully do you seek the Father in prayer? The second question is this. Are you too prideful or do you have other excuses that sound good to you for not asking other people for prayer for you? Oh, they're busy. Oh, this is too petty of a thing. Oh, if they ask for they, I might look needy. What reason? You could spin up a bunch of reasons, but here's the thing. If anyone had reasons not to ask for prayer because they were doing the Christian life right and they were strong, it was the Apostle Paul. If there was anyone who you might think didn't need to ask for prayer because he was the one you wanted praying for you, it was Paul. And yet, what do we see him do multiple times? Please pray for me. Please pray for us. Please pray for my ministry. Please say I'm doing this as we are doing this and that. And if Paul asks for prayer and to be remembered, remember my chains, he says, then maybe you and I should too. How often and meaningfully do you seek the Father in prayer? And what are your excuses or vices, as the case may be, for not asking other people for prayer? If you don't, what are they? The second is developing God-empowered grit. So much could be said here, and I tried to whittle it down to the very core. What is grit? Determination and steadfastness to persevere and endure sustained difficulties and challenges. That's what grit is. And I would say that grit captures very well. It's not a biblical word, but neither is the word trinity. I would say that the grit very accurately captures the combined notions of holding fast to truth, clinging to, not being shaken, not being led astray, keeping on the path, daily saying no to selfish and sinful desires and saying yes to godliness. And here's the thing, over and over and over again. You know, you know, everyone knows that I'm a golf fan. Everyone knows that I'm a golf fan. You know, the best players in golf don't routinely make all these amazing shots. They don't. The best players in golf make ordinary shots with extraordinary consistency. Little five-foot chip. Do it a thousand times. They're not the people regularly making all these amazing... They're the people who just... Can you do the ordinary, regular thing over and over and over and over and over? That takes a God-empowered kind of endurance, particularly when challenges press in and our bodies fight against us. Grit or lack of grit is why people start in the gym in January and by March, everyone who's actually serious about lifting can get back to enjoying an uncluttered gym. Why? In many cases, lack of grit. They committed to something that was not sustainable. And maybe that's their problem. Makes that They really were very overzealous in what they planned and what they decided they were going to commit to. But here's the thing, as Christians, we don't get to decide that. We don't get to decide that. We don't get to decide the workout plan. 
you might say. Sure, we can decide the specific ways we run after these goals, but the goals, the guidelines, the means, the blessings, the consequences have already been laid out in Scripture. And the Scripture is not going back to the editor for revisions. So this is what you have to be committed to doing. That's, this is what you have to be committed to doing. And the only question we will be able is whether we will be able to harness God-empowered grit to live in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Because it will take grit. How do I then develop God-empowered grit that is meaningfully different than a self-help pep talk? To do better and try harder, which doesn't work. Let me give you three specific principles for developing God-empowered grit. This holding fast to truth and holiness together in the storms of life. You say, I'm not, how do I develop that? How do I capture that? The first thing, the most important part of it all, is you must have a compelling vision. And I don't mean a vision statement from the corporate world. I mean God, the gospel, holiness, the mission before you, before us, must be personally compelling to you. It must be personally compelling to you. It does not matter how much willpower you think you have. If you believe that you are committing yourself to something that is honestly not worth it, might be valuable, just like losing that weight or whatever your person in the gym. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be valuable, but it's not worth this. It's not valuable enough to justify the striving. If that's you, you'll never develop steadfastness. Ever. You will continually be someone who is easily shaken and lacks discipline. Because steadfastness always has a compelling end in mind. Not like personal fulfillment, which is like an end in itself. Steadfastness is always toward what end? I'm being steadfast toward what end exactly? And if, if that end stops capturing your heart, you will not stay steadfast, particularly when it becomes hard. Maybe you could do it for a while while things are easy. So here's what you say. You say, Tyler, if I'm honest, I don't find it compelling. It doesn't capture my heart. I, I'm, I believe that it's true. I believe the gospel. I'm, ha I'm thankful. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it does not drive my soul. If that's you, I would say you need to ask why that's the case and address it. And it's going to happen in one or two ways. Maybe both. Perhaps, first, you have gotten into a Christian routine and you may need to find a way to tell yourself the gospel in a manner that recaptures your heart and your emotions instead of a collection of static theological truths. You, you may need to find where the story of Scripture overlaps your personal story and where you find it particularly beautiful because of how God has written your story and He's written this story and they intersect at different places for all of us. Perhaps it's the father who was never there. Yeah, yeah maybe I have, I have a father. Maybe you need to tell yourself the story in a fresh way. Well, I never belonged when I have a family. Well, I've always felt enslaved to this or that. It is... 
it is for freedom that Christ Jesus has, has set us free. Well, I've suffered injustice. Well, God is the God of justice. God owned the justice language way before 21st century America. He achieved it at the cross. Vindication is coming for you. Have you been wronged? Vindic- public vindication is coming for you. Perhaps you need to re-excite yourself with the gospel. Maybe you just need to revisit the wonder of the basics. Sit in the majesty of God, His attributes, what happened on the cross. The second thing you may need to do, and this is the more difficult one, is you may need to look at yourself before you try to look to Christ. Now bear with me here. Bear with me here, because it sounds counterintuitive to some people. Like we're getting counseling or sanctification backwards here. But here's the thing. I'm going to spare you some frustration in coming alongside people. No amount of looking to Christ with distorted glasses on is going to be compelling. I remember going into the Sistine Chapel and looking up in Rome. It was breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Those of you who have been there know it's just unbelievable. But imagine you were in the Sistine Chapel with one of those visors they give you after you leave the ophthalmologist's office, the real good-looking ones, like the gray goggles. You're looking up at the ceiling. You don't see anyone else. No one else has got goggles on, but imagine you don't know you're wearing them. You're sitting up there going, it just kind of looks dull, if I'm honest. Why is everyone marveling at this? This kind of seems, eh. No, look, look, look. Well, the more I look through the same lens, still looks the same gray. If someone, for any variety of reasons, the environment they were raised, things that have happened to them, how they process life, how they engage in relationships, whatever the case may be, if someone mightily struggles to interpret reality in general, engage in a relationship, steward their emotions in accordance with truth and wisdom in general, their relationship with God is going to be deeply affected Because you take those same categories and emotions into your relationship with God. It's a relationship. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free pass. You enter into a relationship with the Lord. Those problems don't magically get fixed when you get justified. Any more than they do when you observe the other patterns of brokenness and compulsive behaviors or whatever as the case may be in your life. If you have problematic, entrenched patterns of thoughts, feelings, behaviors that exercise this inordinate influence on how you see life, that will shape how you see God. And it might seem so bizarre to other people, but you can have people who look at the gospel and say, that looks like another example of child abuse, just like I was abused. I listened to a pastor whose parents dropped him off at an airport just this past week. Dropped him off at an airport when he was in middle school. 
sent him to live with an abusive relative. Never saw him again. You know what? When he became saved, when he repented and believed the gospel, when he looked to Christ and he looked to God as Father, he had serious problems finding it compelling. Fatherhood had a certain connotation for him. He never did belong. Proverbs 25, 20 verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is deep waters, but a heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw them out. It may be that you are someone, for whatever reasons, whether you struggle to interpret, interpret things, just relationally engage, whatever the case may be, because of what has happened to you, because of the way you're wired, Whatever. You can fill in all the blanks and make all the personal adjustments and caveats. It may be that you need some help before looking to Christ is going to be compelling to help. Helps You need someone to help you take off the visor. Could be a wiser believer who could help peel the onion of your soul. It could be a Christian counselor. E- either way, you may need some lens cleaning, fixing, or replacing, and in one sense, there's a spectrum here, because don't we all have a broken lens at some point? To some extent, does anyone have a perfectly clear lens to those kind of things? Aren't affected by their past, their personality, their emotions, this and that? No. It's on a spectrum. And I know this is a challenging thing to potentially admit about yourself, because it's an instance of seeing reality in relationships and communication more generally in a broken way, And if you suggest this to someone, it may even feel like an insult and be very, very careful with this. But if someone struggles in all of these other areas, those things magically don't get fixed when God says not guilty. There is part of a process of sanctification. There is part of a process of healing from broken patterns of thought and things that have happened. And if you're maybe you're in that category, you say the the. Just because God did not become less compelling just because you don't find him compelling. So when do you have to ask something like this? Maybe maybe it's me. Maybe it's me, and what kind of help do I need? What level of help do I need? The second thing, that's that's the first part of faithfulness. You have to have this compelling vision to have gospel and God empowered grit. It has to capture your heart, and if it doesn't, you have to find out why. You cannot move past this step. Second, you have to have clear indicators of faithfulness. I'm not talking about wooden metrics from the business world. I'm talking about examples of what faithfulness actually looks like, what doing the Christian life looks like. If you have a compelling ultimate goal, but a fuzzy understanding how to get there, you're going to exhaust yourself with good-hearted meandering that leaves you where you began or frustrated at at worst. We have examples in Scripture. You have examples in the lives of those around you whose lives have been mastered by Scripture, molded by Scripture. When I, when I, some of you know I worked at Dell for a while, and my, the ultimate goal of the role and was very clear, and for me at least it was compelling. But you know what I did to see if I was attacking that goal properly? I watched the veteran person next to me. I, just, I, I, I asked them, what are your, how do you do this? How do you know if you're on track? How are you successful here? What do you do when you get stuck going towards your goal? And I just, I just emulated that person and I did quite well. I advanced quite quickly. 
What are clear indicators of faithfulness? We see the clear teachings and commands of Scripture. You see it in the lives of godly people. You see it in the examples of Scripture. So what, what would you say are the indicators of faithfulness that you could even tack on as, as little wind flags to your life? So you do not run with genuine zeal and energy in a manner that doesn't develop your steadfastness. It just causes you to gasp for more of it. I'm steadfast, I'm steadfast, I'm steadfast, but I'm not steadfast in any particular way going towards the goal. And so now I'm left just needing to be more steadfast. Now I'm exhausted. So what does it look like? What does faithfulness look like? Would you know it if you saw it? Would you know if you saw in your own life, you have to have some clear indicators of faithfulness. You can't just go on good-hearted zeal, even after you have the compelling vision. What is moving forward toward this look like? And finally, I must have other people alongside me enduring with me. At the time in the Word this week, I was at the end of 2 Timothy, I was struck freshly by how necessary this is and how unbiblical being a loner is. The Apostle Paul towards the end of his career, some of his last words, again, if anyone had the maturity to, not, to, to go at it alone, it was this man. It was this man. Anyone else been to heaven? No, you haven't. It was this man. What do we find him saying? Everyone's deserted me. Some for better reasons, some for worse. Demas has been in love with the world. Only Luke is with me. So what does he say? Please come to me. Please, please come by winter if you can. He's got a time frame. Throughout his letters, we see his familiarity. He's greeting this dazzling array of people. He's quarterbacking this whole missions effort where oftentimes there are people with him and sometimes there aren't. But he already understands, he understands very clearly that he has to have people. That's part of the plan of endurance. It allows him to tell Timothy, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Who helps you keep the faith? Who helps you keep the faith? Don't think you can do what the Apostle Paul did not. Gospel-empowered grit is crowned in gospel-empowered community. It's crowned in gospel-empowered community. It will look different for everyone according to circumstances and personality. Understood. Got it. But be about it. Be about it. I have confidence in the Lord that in doing so, He will establish you and guard your hearts in Christ. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your gospel. We are thankful that you are able to redeem and transform. We're thankful that no matter where we find ourselves this morning, there's hope. Lord, I pray for the person who is perhaps quietly disobeying express commands of Scripture with apathy, that you would convict their heart. And I pray for those who might be honest enough to say in the quiet of their heart, I'm glad the gospel is true and I, 
glad that God gives purpose to life, but it doesn't, it just doesn't capture my soul. I pray that they would do what they need to do. They would take responsibility to see the beautiful gospel for what it is. Would you please give him grace? Would you please make this a place for them that is safe and where Jesus Christ is magnified for them?